We're back, back on Letterman Jacket, back, uh, we're recording here with Todd Lisenby, uh, early Monday afternoon, just hours after Dylan Gabriel checked into the transfer portal. Uh, we're back here on the pod uh, after the Sooners landed in the Alamo Bowl yesterday afternoon and back for the 28th episode of the Letterman Jacket podcast. Todd, what's going on? A lot going on between the portal, between bowl season, between the playoff in the college football world and around Norman. You said checked into the portal for Dylan Gabriel like he was surrendering surrendering himself to authorities or something. Uh, <laughs> it, it was quite the shock when that news came across this morning. And it's I don't know why it is really, but I think it kind of hit everyone by surprise. Uh, but that's we'll talk about it more. That's how college football works nowadays, brother. You 28th yeah. episode, though, Adrian Peterson, first name that comes to mind. There you go. Famously that's known good. as AP. I'm kidding. I'm no. kidding. I'm kidding. <laughs> AP. That's that's him. No, nothing else. No other names. No other names that people are going to get upset about. I can't wait for the comment section. If you do reply, if you want an instant reply from me on this podcast in the YouTube comments below, make a big stink about the AD AP thing. And uh, I promise you I will reply. Um, Todd, this is college football in 2023. We are going to talk about that. We're going to talk. Uh, about what it means for the Sooners, Dylan Gabriel, Jackson Arnold, the whole thing. Talk about the Alamo Bowl and everything else. But first, we've got to thank our sponsors, our good friends at Rose Hill Builders, the National Cowboy and Western Heritage Museum, Oklahoma Ford De- Dealers, Our Blood Institute, Bob Moore Auto Group, and of course, good friends at Fire Lake, firelakejobs.com. The Citizen Potawatomi Nation has more than 75 positions available at one of its many businesses. You can go to firelakejobs.com to find out more and join the team. All right, so recapping here. We go through the weekend, championship weekend plays out, all the bowl game, playoff stuff plays out, and you might have thought if you were someone, you know, cas- more casual following along with college football lately that, you know, the portal's already open, right? Because all last week after those final regular season games, um, things moving plenty fast. Guys, you know, announcing their plans to hit the portal, but... Uh, not until midnight, uh, you know, midnight Sunday night or really Monday morning, does the portal open. And then right around eight o'clock uh, Monday morning, everything explodes, including um, news that Dylan Gabriel, Sooners quarterback the last two years, fifth year guy who's got one more season of eligibility remaining, uh, is going to hit the transfer portal. He'll be playing elsewhere in 2024. You said it, Todd, like a bit, I think of a maybe a surprise in terms of the timing. Um, maybe the fact that we're talking about Dylan Gabriel going to the portal and not to the pros. Um, but I will say this, and off the bat, and we'll dive more into it. I, I think, you know, it, it always seemed like a stretch to me for Dylan Gabriel to be back in Norman in 2024. That was the one thing that, you know, everything that kind of flew around or people talking about things the last few weeks, I, I, I struggled to see it. And, and from everything I'd heard, it, it didn't sound likely that he was going to be back, you know, as the Sooners quarterback next fall um but here we are i mean he he hits the portal certainly is one of the most coveted you know transfer quarterbacks i'd imagine world of nil there's going to be plenty of lucrative stuff out there Uh, but what was your kind of initial read on on seeing the news that dylan gabriel had hit the portal well i i mean my first initial thought was um as and i don't want this this is not a knock on dylan gabriel obviously but my first initial thought is he looked at his possibility of playing in the pros and thought i'm better served playing another year in college 
for multiple reasons. And one of those obviously is NIL money. And, you know, for all the bad with NIL, this is one of those examples of why NIL is a thing. A guy like Dylan Gabriel, who can get an extra year by doing all the right things and, you know, being able to go in as a grad transfer. Uh, and Dylan Gabriel can go to a school and get NIL money. And that money is going to be more than he could probably ever make in the NFL or in the CFL or things like that. So I, I think it's exactly what NIL is for. It's not surprising. The schools that he's been linked with early on are also not surprising. And again, we're recording this on a Monday. Uh, heck, by you know Wednesday or Thursday, he may have announced where he's going, the way this thing goes. I don't even know if they can do that that yet. But um, I guess I guess for me, it's it kind of shows you that Dylan Gabriel knows where his ceiling is or where he thinks his ceiling is. And I also do think, Eli, one of the underrated things about this is he's networking. Uh, Dylan Gabriel, if he wants to work in football, and by all accounts is a is just personally the type of guy who is respected by not just his peers on the field, but also coaches. And if he wants to use that to leverage his way into working in football, whether it's working in football as a coach or even using football as a way to move into the private sector. Like all he's doing is networking right now. And I think, uh, I think for someone as smart as him, he's going to pick a place where he can be successful. And also let's not forget he's right up near the top of the list in career passing yards. So he's got a chance to really cement his legacy by the time he ends. Yeah, I think, I mean, everything you said, it, it makes sense. And you know, there, it, it begins kind of all the different factors. Uh, you look at it from an Oklahoma angle. We don't know what you know discussions were had between Brent Venables and uh, and Dylan Gabriel. You know Jeff Lebby in his final weeks at OU, Seth Luttrell now. But fact is, there's a lot of change going on at OU after this season. We're talking a, a conference move, uh, a new offensive coordinator in Seth Luttrell, uh, and it's not an elephant in the room. But the you know any discussion about OU quarterbacking from here on out goes to Jackson Arnold. And so when you consider all that context and the fact that, you know, perhaps OU has, has made the decision itself that Jackson Arnold is going to be the guy in 2024 and that it's time to kickstart that development, take that to the next step. Maybe that's a part of it for Dylan Gabriel. You know, perhaps he saw that, you know, his time at OU um, had come to a close and that there were other opportunities out there. The pros um, being, you know, his opportunity in professional football probably doesn't change much from this year to next. Uh, maybe he can show a bit more, but perhaps he wasn't getting the kind of reviews when you know putting out feelers um, about what was out there. And then you look at the the market for quarterbacks. I mean, it was Matt Rule last week, and this has kind of been backed up by people across the country. Elite quarterbacks right now in the portal per Matt Rule, Nebraska head coach, going for one point five two million dollars. You look at the list of available transfer quarterbacks, and Dylan Gabriel's kind of at the top of that list. So. This could be a very lucrative move. Um, you know, he's got options. Certainly, I'm sure his, his phone's going to blow up. Team's wanting him. Uh, as you mentioned, a guy who's going to close his career, even if he'd gone to the pros right now, uh, near the top of the NCAA leaderboards in a bunch of different categories, he'll have a chance to chase some of those down next year. I think uh, the passing touchdowns and total touchdowns are in reach. He'd have to have a pretty monster year to pass Case Keenum for the all-time passing list. But the fact that we're even talking about that or that he could be close says a lot and, and fact is you know he could he could certainly land in a in a 12 team playoff landscape with a program that'll be competing for the for the playoff you'd also think Oklahoma especially if Dylan Gabriel were to come back you know is a guy who who would be 
you know, on a team that would be contending for the playoff, but he's going to have options. I'll ask you this, Todd, you mentioned the school's rumored. It's early. It's Monday. It's only been a few hours since this news has been out there. Mississippi state and Jeff Levy, some obvious links, you know, Oregon, uh, you know, could be a fit, uh, USC apparently interested. Come on. How about that for storylines? If you, I, I mean, I, I'll say if you were Dylan Gabriel, um, what potential landing spot makes most sense for 2024? Well, I'm not Dylan Gabriel, so I, I'm answering this as Todd Lisenby. As Todd Lisenby, I would probably be thinking more towards networking and maybe going and playing somewhere else. And, you know, I I would want to be closer to home if I were him. I'm not him, but if I were, and maybe Oregon is that answer, maybe kind of being on that West Coast is somewhere he wants to be, but also he may be in love with the Southeast, Eli, playing it, playing mm-hmm. in Orlando, playing in Oklahoma. He may be in love with this area of the country and have a lot of connections down here, and this is just a chance to further him. I think, honestly, we're talking about, you know, what part of the country and what's a good fit on the field, and I think the the one of the biggest factors is obviously going to be how much money he can get at these places. Uh, what schools collective is going to offer him the most amount of money. And, you know, if it's a bidding war, uh, you've got, you've got some schools with some money that are going to be involved. If it's a bidding war, Mississippi state's out and Oregon and USC are going toe to toe for him. If it's about fit, Mississippi state is the obvious best fit just as far as having some familiarity with, you know, Jeff Levy there. Certainly. I mean, th- those are kind of different tracks. I-, I think, you know, having covered Dylan, spent a lot of time around him, um, there's no way that, uh, as, you know, for anybody, any player that goes into the portal in an NIL era, especially a quarterback, money's going to be in play and it'll be a part of the equation. But a-, a guy like Dylan Gabriel, I can say this, he's really considered about all everything he does. He He stays present. He's a guy who thinks things through. And, it you know, it's funny to say that in a sense about the quarterback who was at the airport on his way to UCLA before Jeff Levy pulled him to OU. But that's the guy we knew for two years in Norman, was, was someone who's, who's thoughtful. Um, I, I don't think he's going to make this decision lightly. I don't think um, it's going to just be about the highest bidder. But like you said, you're not Dylan Gabriel. I'm not him either. Maybe it is one more year with Jeff Levy that sounds great. But when we're talking about those things, you know, I think we're talking about a quarterback here who can be – a leader and you know potential Heisman candidate on a playoff team next year, Mississippi State as currently constituted is probably not giving him that yep. opportunity, at least not on the playoff front. So that's that's a piece of it as well. But naturally, the links will be there with Jeff Lebby. Uh, if you hop on Twitter, Mississippi State fans are trying; they're passing around cans to to raise the money um, for him. I mean, look, they're an SEC program. There's plenty of money there, but we know that. Um, this is all relative. And when you're talking about Oregon and USC, other SEC programs, a lot of QB needy places, a lot of places willing to spend money on a quarterback. That's where Mississippi State might fall behind. But, um, you know, Dylan Gabriel is certainly going to have a lot of options. It's going to be fascinating to see where he goes or to see, you know, whether it's the SEC or a playoff scenario where he could cross paths with Oklahoma potentially next fall. It's amazing how these things come together. But, you know, on the flip side, there's also Dylan Gabriel's legacy, right, at OU and what he leaves. I think, you know, a lot of people expected him to be going to the pros and there wouldn't be this next chapter. But um, it's also worth at this point, and I know we've talked about it before, considering, you know, what he accomplished in his two years here. 
Can I? It, legacy is so interesting now, Eli, in college yeah. sports because guys are moving from team to team to team. And when I grew up, and you're younger than me, even when you grew up, guys played their entire college careers yeah. with one team. And so now, you know, a guy, you think of a guy like Jalen Hurts, he has a legacy in Norman and in Tuscaloosa. And I just find it real fascinating to see how fans over the years react to the transfer portal and what it does. I want to ask you a couple questions, though. Yeah. Question number one, if Oklahoma, let's say, goes to the Cotton Bowl and plays Ohio State, is does that change Dylan Gabriel's mind at all? Again, I know we're guessing, but do you think it does? Even on the timing of it, I guess. Yeah, I mean, the timing, because we're going to get to Jackson Arnold here, but the timing of this is important because this is not, uh, you know, I'm sure this was all open and honest within the program in terms of the conversations here. But, you know, if you wait a whole month, you're burning 15 bowl practices and, and a start for Jackson Arnold. Um, whether that's the right thing or not, or whether, you know, going to that Cotton Bowl and putting, you know, having the best team finish out is, is its own debate. But that was important. I, I struggle to think, you know, obviously there'd be a market for Dylan Gabriel later, but it's a game of musical chairs for the quarterbacks. This market um, is all about, you know, who's available and when. Um, and so while I'm sure he could have waited, you know, I think the best landing spot, the best, you know, opportunity probably started here. I know there were at least one report from on three today that he might still be contemplating the Alamo bowl, but I sort of struggled to see a world where Dylan Gabriel's in the portal NOU, not within animosity just doesn't say, well, what's the point? Um, you know, we can spend this whole month developing Jackson Arnold and, and giving him his first start against Arizona. So I don't see a scenario where Jackson, uh, excuse me, Dylan Gabriel would have declared for the portal uh, and then been a part of this thing. And so I do think ultimately the outcome was probably going to be today, no matter what. All right. And the second question, and I, I don't know that this, this did happen. Maybe it did happen. I don't know, but let's say a little role play here. You're Brent Venables. I'm Dylan Gabriel. Mm -hmm. I come in and go, Hey, I want to come back next year. How do you think that conversation went? Well, I think Again, you know, if it ever I, happened. Yeah, that's what I alluded to before. I'm sure there were discussions. I don't know the details of, the, of those discussions, but that's where it does come in where, you know, you just got to go back to September. It was pre-Arkansas State before the opener. Brent Venables had a quote where he basically said, you know, he was talking about how important Dylan Gabriel was. And then he finished with, we know Dylan won't be here next year. And the gist of it was, we've got to prepare someone to be ready for that. We've got mm -hmm. a plan for that. And we're going to do that. Um, now you could debate, you know, who does OU have a better shot of making the 2024 playoff, the 12 teamer with Dylan Gabriel or Jackson Arnold? I don't know, but Oklahoma's plan very well could have been, you know, looking on to 24, uh, 2024, um, is that Jackson Arnold's going to be our starting quarterback. And cause if, if you've got Dylan Gabriel coming back, you open up the whole thing. It's the same thing we, we talk about at Texas, right? With Quinn Ewers, Arch Manning, Malik Murphy. It's probably best for Texas if Quinn Ewers comes back next year in terms of their 2024 hopes. But that's going to have ramifications down the line, and, and you could see guys potentially looking elsewhere. If you know Jackson Arnold is the future of the program the way they believe him to be, you bring back Dylan Gabriel or any other quarterback for next year to, to start above him, you run risks, certainly, with, with Jackson. And, and so I think... There was a plan here. I don't know uh, what might have happened if that question was posed to Brent Venables or if he had the opportunity, but I, I do think there's a real you know, chance here that there was a longer-term plan, one that includes Jackson Arnold taking over next fall, and that's part of why we're here. 
Yeah, I I find the whole situation pretty interesting, and uh, we'll get into the Alamo Bowl matchup when you look at how Oklahoma's going into this game versus how Arizona's going into this game. Yeah. It feels a lot like last year with Oklahoma and Florida State with two programs that are using this bowl for different reasons. So we can talk about that more here in a minute. Well, I think what where the Gabriel deal takes us, I mean, I mentioned legacy, and it, I think for him it'll always be – um, you know, as the the guy who was one of the rudders in the early Brent Venables era, think about where they were when he committed to OU. Caleb Williams leaving. Uh, you know, it's all in the wake of of Lincoln Riley and Dylan Gabriel. You know, certainly this season looked like an Oklahoma quarterback in the whole thing. He'll always have the Cotton Bowl, but but and and took them to ten wins in year two, prolific passing stats. But take away the record, either year, he was the guy, one of the central leaders that carried this team through the first two years of the Brent Venables era. And as we've said on here before, you know, if in three years time, we're talking about an OU team that is just rolling under Brent Venables, you'll be able to look back on these two years and say, Dylan Gabriel was a part of of getting that thing started. So that's one thing. The other thing here in Dylan Gabriel moving to the portal, does this formally open the, the Jackson Arnold era in Norman Todd? I think it does. Yeah, I mean it has to. It's that's what everyone has been saying was going to happen and uh you know, when when it came out that Jeff Levy was leaving and going to Mississippi State, you immediately saw comments from Jackson Arnold's family, you know, he's staying, he's a sooner. I think that was everyone's first fear was that Jackson Arnold might jump into the transfer portal. And you know, it's a it's how you have to play the game nowadays. I find it so interesting you know, we we talk about Dylan Gabriel and you compare him a little bit to Josh Heupel and when he came in as a transfer in Bob Stoops' first year. But what was different then, Bob Stoops inherited a bad team. Brent Venables inherited a gutted roster. And now you have it's this yearly process of coaches have to make sure that they manage the roster for not just the bowl game, but more importantly for what's ahead the next year or two. So I think, you know, you mentioned it earlier, even if Dylan Gabriel wanted to play, I think the smartest thing for Brent Venables and coaches to do in this situation is say, especially at the quarterback position. Let's get a guy some snaps. Let's get him some reps in a game that really doesn't mean anything. So, and I also want to point out, you you had said this earlier about if Dylan Gabriel, and we, we have just talked about it, if Dylan Gabriel wants to play, that you would probably ask him not to, or that he probably won't want to play, even if it was a cotton bowl against Ohio State. This is part of the reason why we're going to have the 12-team playoff, Eli. Is yeah. because guys are going to want to play if they can be that 11th seed or that 10th seed instead of opting out of, you know, an Orange Bowl game that means nothing against maybe Liberty or something like that. So, um, I, I, I like what the 12 team playoff is going to bring, but it's the whole college landscape by this time next year is going to be turned around. So, back to your original question though, Jackson Arnold, I'm excited to see what he can do. I'm excited to see you remember we're also going to get a sneak peek not just to Jackson Arnold but we're going to see a little bit I would imagine of Seth Seth Latrell on this offense in the postseason oh, so that'll bit, be interesting to watch yeah. as well. Well that's the thing there's like the short term and the long term of this. Short term uh Dylan Gabriel making this decision today Monday December 4th makes it so that Jackson Arnold is going to be their quarterback for the 15 bowl practices in a in a bowl game making his first career start you know, in all likelihood against Arizona, that's a month's long head start for him and Seth Luttrell on whatever they got to figure out for next year. 
um, on Dylan, uh, excuse me, Jackson Arnold. That might take some time on Jackson Arnold, you know, taking the reins here and, and stepping into 2024, perhaps with, you know, really whatever happens in the bowl game. I mean, if, if it goes great, amazing, there's momentum. You know, if it doesn't, then, that you know, it's all experience at this point. You mentioned it, it's not a, a game that beyond the Sooners wanting to get to 11 wins and putting a good cap on this season doesn't hold major significance. This month should be for the Sooners all about development toward 2024. And ideally, that can come through a win, and Jackson Arnold looks great against Arizona, and so do all the other guys. You know, maybe young guys we didn't see enough this year that we're going to see more of. That's the goal, but it's about development. And so when we're looking at it through that lens and considering that Jackson Arnold uh, is almost certainly going to be under center when they kick off uh, next September, that's huge. And him getting this time is huge. So that, that's the short term. The long term is now it's, it's no longer a really a murky picture. We know that, you know, after that bowl game, o- OU's quarterback depth is Jackson Arnold, it's Davis Bevel and General Booty, at least for the time being, and it's Michael Hawkins, the four-star quarterback, who's going to sign later this month. That all sets the stage for Jackson Arnold. There's nobody else on this roster right now who's really at starting caliber level in 2024, and that should excite OU fans. All the people who clamored uh, even through, you know, some of Dylan Gabriel's greatest runs of play that, you know, Jackson Arnold should be the guy is the guy will be the guy of the future they were right about that last part guy of the future that's jackson arnold and the future is now here and i I think if you're an ou fan that's got to really excite you yeah and i think it's going to be a tough test Uh, arizona's really good defensively i think their program is kind of at a spot where they want to use this to bounce i mean you look eli right at the in the last college football playoff rankings arizona's the highest ranked team in next year's big 12 there's a possibility that this Arizona team this year would have an automatic bid into the 12-team playoff by winning the conference. So they can use this to springboard to maybe, you know, getting a college football playoff berth in the next few years. This is for a school that's never been to a Rose Bowl before. So it's it's a very important game, I would imagine, for Arizona fans, for Arizona alumni, and for the future of their program, which is why I'm all the more interested to see how Jackson Arnold plays in that game. I mean, here's a question for you, and this is not like a Jackson Arnold versus Dylan Gabriel thing, but is this game suddenly more meaningful on the whole now that it's likely to be Jackson Arnold starting than Dylan Gabriel? Because in in the first scenario where it's a Dylan Gabriel game, you know, we're watching Dylan Gabriel's last game. It's against an Arizona team that you mentioned. Like, they're a great story. They were won their last six games. They started four and three and and were, you know, looking kind of like the Arizona teams of the past. And then they turn it around and, and they, to your point, are looking to cap off a year in one way and really springboard to 2024. You take that into account with the meaning now behind Jackson Arnold's game. I think OU fans are probably more interested in this game now, knowing that Jackson Arnold's probably making his first start and this is going to be their first real glimpse at him. You've got a full month to, to prepare him. It's not like BYU where you're just throwing him in and kind of having to see out that game. I think it could be made a fair argument could be made that this game became a whole lot more meaningful uh, for the Sooners and for OU fans this morning when, when Dylan Gabriel made that call. No doubt. And the fact that that to make a bowl game more meaningful, we needed a guy to go into the transfer yeah, right. portal, I think shows you why the bowl games are meaningless now. So um, it is it is going to be interesting to watch it. They are basically glorified exhibition games now. And I do think when you just look at resumes, I do think Oklahoma got screwed out of going to a New Year's Six Bowl game. 
when you compare the teams that they got passed over for. So it kind of feels like a settle bowl for Oklahoma fans as well, I think. And this adds a little bit more jazz to it. Sure. But again, in the scheme of meaningful, meaningless, um, maybe OU fans wanted another trip to New Year's Six, wanted to be at the Cotton Bowl, wanted to go to the Fiesta. But in terms of like value, it seems to me this is now the perfect outcome. You're not playing um, Ohio State or Oregon or anything like that. Um, so it's not a massive, either ma- massive stage or a, a right. you know high, high, high level opponent. But you're going to get a lot out of this this month with with what Jackson Arnold's going to get to do and and the game he's going to get to play on the 28th. One other note on OU quarterbacks because now we we look forward to 2024. I, I listed who they've got and we're talking about the portal. OU is not going to have to swim around those waters of the elite quarterbacks uh, in the portal and dropping two million bucks on on a guy. But how long? How far back, Todd? Do we have to go to the last time that OU's inadequate quarterback depth? hurt them uh, last here? season correct remember that texas game when davis yes. bevel got the start and Braden you Willis know why i remember it i was i was in the midway eating a turkey leg mm-hmm. in the third quarter because there was no reason to be at the game anymore correct um i actually uh i'm i may or may not have seen an ou basketball coach eating a turkey leg in the third quarter in the midway so everyone was With getting one. out of that thing early like the all right, hey. Let's just say glorious beard at the time. Interesting, interesting. I quite, well, admi- I quite admired how he uh, handled the turkey leg with the beard, which, you know, is, is, it is a skill, I must say. Degree of difficulty that those of us who are not so blessed uh, on the facial hair um, wouldn't know. Those are, the, that's the, those are the struggles you've got, Todd, that we just would not know about. Have you ever seen the the picture of Brian Dable, the Giants coach, and when you mm-hmm. turn his head upside down, it looks this, like the same? Yes. What if we took like your hair and turned it upside down, and mine and turned it upside down? Do you think we would look? It would like people would go, "Oh, which one's Todd? Which one's Eli?" I think so. Yeah. Yeah. Interesting. That's one for uh, I don't know. Either you at home, internet editors, or I don't know, perhaps. Creative director Michael Lane to put up some freakish uh, graphics at some point. But returning to that point about the quarterbacks, right? Like they've probably got to go get somebody. It doesn't need to be someone to push for a starting job, but it needs to be someone better equipped if called upon. You're always one snap away to back up Jackson Arnold next year. That is where they're going to be. They kind of were in that spot in 2022 with, uh, with Dylan Gabriel. They had him. And it made it hard. That's the challenge. Once you have a guy who's the nailed-on starter, uh, it is hard to recruit guys to come be backups. That's why, not why they got Davis Bevel and General Booty, but that was kind of what OU could go get at that point. They're going to have that challenge again as they search through the portal now. We'll see what they can do. Well, and as we're going to talk about, uh, they just need to make sure if they do have to go to a backup quarterback, that, and especially if they're right on the edge of a playoff spot, that they don't do it before the or that they do it well before the end of the season because uh you know that could cost you a playoff spot apparently. Goodness, um, we're gonna hit on that. We are, but first, Florida State snubbed. I think you know you alluded to it. A lot of OU fans feel this way that Oklahoma kind of got snubbed, and you know we're we're talking about different stakes here. Florida State, you know, gets screwed out of uh, the, you know the college football playoff. Oklahoma. I'd imagine the committee with all they had to deal with uh, 
from Saturday night to Sunday midday was not all that worried about ultimately parsing out Ole Miss versus Oklahoma versus Penn State, Missouri, Oregon. Uh, that Can was I tell you how that conversation down. likely went, Eli? I think it went Let's like it. this. All right, we've got Ole Miss, Penn State, Oklahoma. They've all got the same record. Who played in the best conference? Well, Ole Miss played in the best conference of the three. Penn State played in the second best conference. Oklahoma played in the third best conference. And I'm not here to argue that the Big 12 is worse than the Big 10 because I do think when you start going, you know, six through 12, it's probably better in the Big 12. But I think that's probably how the conversation went. And that's how it fell that way. I don't think they get, I, I don't, like you said, I think there was a lot more important stuff at the top to worry about. I'm not even sure the SEC. I don't know. I don't know if there were any good conferences this year because even the SEC I mean, was the down. Was probably the best conference. Well, that there you go. That they probably were. Uh, crazy stat on the SEC. Uh, so Florida State got a, another top fifteen win with Louisville the other night, right? You know who the SEC's best out of conference win was? Louisville. Nice. There you That's go. Awesome. That only drives it home more. But point being. Um, you know, it, it consequential to Oklahoma's hopes and, and certainly worth diving into the, for that reason. But, you know, in the, the context of the playoff and all the other considerations, you know, if it did fall by the wayside of determining, you know, not upsetting the apple cart from 12 to eight wasn't worth it, it makes sense because ultimately OU stood pat. Uh, they didn't move up. We thought they might climb the, the weekend's results went the Sooners way in terms of Texas winning in terms of SMU getting a win. Florida State falling out of the playoff. All of that was part of the recipe that we all saw for OU sneaking into the New Year's Six. Uh, ultimately, it wasn't enough. And, you know, the, you start looking at the resumes and, and scratching your head. To you, like, wh- where do you begin on, on making the case that, that OU should have been in the New Year's Six when you look at the resumes between them? I think Ole Miss really is the team they, they could or should have jumped. But when you look around there, where do you start? Well, why was Texas ranked ahead of Alabama? because of a quality win. And when you look at one loss teams in the country, the highest ranked one loss team is Texas and their one loss was Oklahoma. So of those three, Oklahoma should have the best quality win. Um, Ole Miss does not have a quality win. They've got two really good losses with Georgia and Alabama, but wins have always seemed to be at a premium. So I think that's the big argument from Oklahoma fans. What, what I think this all boils down to is two things. Number one, Oklahoma was in the big 12, which is going to hurt them. Uh, this year anyway, obviously won't moving forward. But the other thing is, it. let's face it, Eli, a lot of what happens is what they saw last. You know, we talked about this. We had a reaction to the uh, college football playoff rankings on Sunday. Uh, Barry Trammell, Garen Emick, Jenny Carlson, and I got all together for a little roundtable. And it was brought up. Alabama two weeks ago nearly lost to Auburn. And now, one week later, just one game, now all of a sudden they're better than Florida State. Um, so I think you got to remember what people saw last from Oklahoma was two games where defensively they did not play well. The TCU game was ugly on the Friday after Thanksgiving, and I think that hurt them when it comes to the rankings. Old Miss wasn't great either uh, in that last performance. Penn State, you know, it was a not important game for Penn State. They didn't have a big matchup. But Oklahoma did did themselves no favors by playing the way they did down the stretch. They didn't do enough to overcome having that Big 12 conference stuck next to their name this year. 
Yeah, I mean, ultimately, and this is, I don't know about right or wrong, we can fight about this, or if you want to get on Twitter.com, there's plenty of people debating it, and uh, got a lot of digital ink between the playoff and everything else, right, the last 48 hours, but ultimately, based on what you could read from the, the committee, based on what Boo Corgan, the executive director, said, they valued quality losses, and that's probably not right, and like that's that's what's going to get people upset, but... Um, you look at it, Oklahoma's losses were to Kansas and to a, a team that the committee ranked 20th, that Oklahoma State team. Everyone else that they were kind of going up against, it was losses to Georgia, to Alabama, to LSU. Uh, with, with Penn State, you're talking about Michigan and Ohio State. I don't know if it's right. You know, Is it about the teams you lose to or the teams you beat? I, I, I've, I think you know, on balance, history-wise, it's been about the games you win. But that's where they went and, and where I'll give... I don't know about the committee credit, but more like I, maybe it shouldn't have been a surprise. They've been consistent on Oklahoma since the Sooners dropped those back-to-back games. They didn't get, you know, I say deceived, but the, the blowout wins over West Virginia and TCU didn't shift much. And seemed like the opinion that the committee drew on Oklahoma after their two losses held. And to your point, I don't know that there was anything over the last month, you know, two blowout wins against West Virginia and TCU, one of which your, your defense still gets gashed by a, a TCU team that's going to miss out on a bowl game. Uh, the game at BYU was tight, um, some of that having to do with Dylan Gabriel leaving injured. There was nothing in there. There was not another ranked win. There was not another big victory or a blowout where they really you know looked as good as they did maybe earlier in the season to, to push them beyond anything. And clearly, you know, the committee's mind um, in some sense on the Sooners was made up. It's why we're here talking about an Alamo Bowl and and not a New Year's Six game. Yeah, I I think everything you just said is correct. And uh, what I hate is you're right. It does seem like there was more put on losses this year. But the frustrating part for college football fans, and I'm sure even more for coaches and administrators, is the target's always moving. It's it's sometimes it's wins, sometimes it's losses, sometimes it's strength of schedule, sometimes it's conference strength. It all it all has sometimes it's how many losses you have, you know, zero versus one. In the case of, for example, Liberty over SMU, I know SMU had two losses, but Liberty has the worst schedule in the country. And SMU would be you and I have seen SMU play mm-hmm. and Liberty play. SMU would probably be a ten or twelve point favorite against Liberty. Mm-hmm. There's no reason if we're talking about a high test. Someone should think Liberty is better, but in that case, they did. So it's the, the problem is there's no consistency in the argument, and I think we're going to have less ar- – we'll still have the arguments at 11 because usually the 12 seed is going to be the group of five champ. We'll have the argument as, at who's the 11 seed or the 10 seed well, every year, and there will be some teams left out. But it's not going to be as big or as egregious of an error ever as an undefeated power conference champion being left out. Thankfully for college football, one of what I think is the dumbest things about a really great sport is never going to be a dumb thing again, which is a team going undefeated and having no chance to play for the title. Um, that's a good thing we're going to fix. I mean, it, here's where it matters, quote unquote, is that Oklahoma would have been the last team out on the playoff. If it were a 12-team field this year, they would have been the last team out. Now, the counterpoint to that, you kind of speak to the consistency or lack thereof of the committee. I would not draw too many conclusions from what the committee did this year and apply it to next year. I think, uh, honestly, I think they were able to make the call they did with Florida State because they knew this was it on the four team. 
and that almost the precedent set now is going to get binned uh, the second this wraps up this year. Point being, um, you can certainly look at it and say, man, Oklahoma, you know, if, if Oklahoma uh, next year has the same resume and everyone around them has the same resume, it'll be a much louder and stronger case for you know, why they should be in that group this year. I, I again, I leaned, I think it, some of it's uh, sort of tongue in cheek, but the idea that the committee on Sunday wasn't all that worried about 10, you know, eight through 12, uh, I think is, is fairly real. That'll be a very different story when all the conference champions are locked in and you are parsing out those final spots in a year's time. Well, and I just want to say this also, let's not forget when we talk, and yes, technically you are right. Technically, Oklahoma would have been the first team left out. But let's also not forget that next year, Oklahoma plays Missouri and Ole Miss, two teams ranked ahead of them. So if Oklahoma wins both of those games and still finishes 10-2, and two, they're in. If they lose one or two and they're 9-3 and three or 8-4, and four, they're out anyway. So that's all going to take care of itself on the field which I think is is one of the things about still this matter? team playoff. Do wins on the field still matter? Yeah, right? right. It's crazy. I thought they were gone now that we're to a 12-team next year. Goodness. I think, unfortunately, that's at least one of the takeaways you could have from the Florida State deal. And that's where we're going to close out is a little CFP, Liz in, Liz out. But, like, it's too simple to say the games don't matter anymore. But that's about as close as we've ever gotten, right, to the to the to the playoff committee basically binning what is a perfect resume uh over you know i think it was the florida state ad who said uh they've turned into a committee of prognosticators good sentence i was impressed you could tell they had those ready by the way um but you know the fact is whatever you want to argue about what the better game is you know we're we're at least a little bit closer this year to kind of projecting teams and saying Alabama has gotten to the point they are you know they're they're playing the best football right now if you want to put it that way um and tossing away what Florida State did that's probably not a great direction for us to be headed in the good news again 12 team playoff this won't be a problem and i think this is we'll have other problems believe me but this issue is going to disappear after this year well i mean you can't how do you compare what Florida State did this year and what Alabama did this year. They have one common opponent. And if, you, if you're going off one common opponent, that's a stupid way to do it, right? You need more than just the one common opponent. They didn't play head-to-head. They have maybe some common opponents who have common opponents. As you mentioned, Florida State just beat Louisville, which was the, com- the SEC conference's best non-conference mm-hmm. win. So, okay, let's say maybe you think the SEC is stronger than the ACC. What that's based on, it's not non-conference games because the ACC actually did better in non-conference than the SEC did. They had bigger wins in non-conference because of Florida State than the SEC did. So it's not based on non-conference games. So it's just based on this feeling that this conference is better. Okay, that's fine. If you're going to go on a feeling, we need a little bit more of margin for error than four teams. And I think that's that's where we're getting at. And in a weird way, Eli, I think I think this is going to end up being good for the college football playoff committee because I think there's going to be so much more of an appetite for that 12-team playoff next year that people are going to eat it up. I think this is – they can go and say, listen, you don't want this to happen again. It's not next year. Everyone buy in. It's going to be great. Sponsors, mm-hmm. give us a lot of money. you know. And, and I think it's going to make the 12-team playoff – not that it wasn't already popular, but more popular than it already was. It's a shame, though. It's it's a joke, really. It's 
it's one of those times, like I said, where college football just puts its hand up and goes, hey, we're still really archaic and stupid. And I hate that it does that because it's such a great sport, but it's ruined by moments like this. It is college football is the only sport anywhere in the world at any level where you can win every game and not have a chance to win a championship. And I don't know how we're still here in 2023, but we are. And it was understandable. It wasn't great, but it was at least palatable and understandable when it happened to UCF in a group of five conference, not with a big out-of-conference win. But when it happens to Florida State in a conference that just gave us Clemson in the last decade who was dominating college football, when it happens to Florida State, who went out and beat two schools that are power five schools away from home in non-conference. And oh, by the way, when the team that replaces them is Alabama, who plays in the same conference as those two schools that Florida state went out and beat in the non-conference, then it, it absolutely boggles the mind. And it's the, it's the committee. I'll call it out for what I think it is. It's the committee being afraid of the sec backlash so much that they used a kid's injury to keep Florida State out of the playoff. That's what it is. The committee knew there would be less backlash if they left Florida State out than Alabama, and they used Jordan Travis, who just had a, a season-ending injury and a life-changing injury as a pawn in their little game to not be ridiculed by college football fans. This is the energy we need as we go into Liz in, Liz out. I love that. I love that. I, I will say... I mean, that Jordan Travis tweet, you know, where he basically said, you know, the, the a direct quote from there is, I wish I'd broken my leg earlier in the season. If you want any, I mean, the sport as currently constituted, that tells you it's it's broken. The good news, if you're a college football fan or a committee member uh, who doesn't want to, who wants to sleep better at night, you're going to 12 teams next year. But um, that I think is, is actually the issue is, is that you penalized a team that did everything right. Um, and had a late season injury there's nothing to you know the other night they're their third string quarterback a month of their backup you're telling me that they're not you know a team of the great defense and impressive skill players isn't college football playoff worthy that, i mean that part's ridiculous however did we maybe get the two best semifinals we could it's a different debate and a conversation for later this month i think but talking playoff talking liz in liz out we've already established that that florida state got some level of snub screwed whatever term you want to put on it um i've got a belief but i'm not going to share it but uh michigan number one over washington you liz in or you liz out on that i'm liz out i agree with barry trammell we talked about this yesterday or mm -hmm. sunday i guess as we recorded it if you're watching this uh he thinks washington's the most underseated team in this whole thing they've got the the best quality wins Washington has that underrated skill of being able to win every single close game. And it doesn't matter if it's a good team or a bad team, they're able to make it a close game and they make big plays down the stretch and win the game. And so I, I, I don't expect Washington, Texas to be anything more than a one possession game, uh, which is great because the college semifinal games usually stink. So it would be nice if we got a really good game. There's the narrative of Steve Sarkeesian, coaching against his former team as well. I think it would also be a little bit funny if a Pac-12 team won a national championship in the year the conference died. I mean, let's be honest, there would be some humor to that. Um, and 
you know, it would also be there's a, another side of this too, Eli. We've got a chance for a matchup of all SEC when it comes to next year with Texas, Alabama, or all Big Ten when it comes to next year with Washington, Michigan. So I think that's going to be an interesting little subplot to the uh, the Final Four. I like it. It's going to be fun. I'm with you and Barry uh, there. I, it just seems to me that uh, Washington had, the again, a resume that screams number one. Or I mean, if, we agree that if Oregon had beaten them, they're straight into the playoff, right? Probably. Yeah, well, maybe not in the mess. I don't know. Now well, I think I think more. Florida State might have gotten in over Oregon, which to me would have been a shame because I think the Pac-12 is sure even stronger than you know than the the Big Twelve. Well, that opens up a whole other can of worms. But uh, the point being that you beat Oregon twice, um, and and you beat have some of the other wins that that uh, Washington has on its resume. And with Michigan, you're really looking at you kicked it in the gear once against Ohio State yep. and looked good, but it wasn't um, you know a thirty point whooping or anything. That's that. Uh, you Liz in or Liz out. I mean, it, it's sort of the inverse of what we've already hit on. But on Alabama making the jump, it did uh, to get into the playoffs. I th- I'm Liz. I'm Liz in, but I I personally thought that the top four should have been Washington one, Michigan two, Florida State three, Alabama four. I'm I'm not as big on head to head as some other people are. I think when when you look at teams and their resumes, you have to look at the 13 game sample size, and I think over the 13 game sample size, Alabama had a tougher schedule, and did a better job against their schedule than Texas did. Both of them have slipped up recently. Texas hasn't looked good at times either. Um, you know, and Alabama obviously didn't look good against Auburn, but I think they had the better full resume than Texas, so I would have taken them four. So I guess I'm Liz in on Alabama making the playoff, but I'm Liz out on them being ranked ahead of Florida State. Liz in or Liz out on Liberty jumping SMU into that G5 uh, New Year's Six game? Well, I mean, this is, a, this is a message now being sent to the group of five of, hey, if you want to get into that last spot, you should probably schedule light in the non-conference. You, sure, you certainly shouldn't play more than one good or one even decent uh, Power 5 school or Power 4 school, I guess, next year with the Pac-12 mm-hmm. going away. So. I think this is setting a precedent for the group of five going forward. And Liberty, who's got a really light schedule again next year, could very well run the table again. Let's say it's Liberty at 12-0 and or 13-0 and after winning their conference championship game against a 12-1 and Tulane, and Tulane's only loss is in Norman. Do they, do they overlook Tulane for Liberty in that situation? I, you know, it's, these are going to be a lot more interesting next year when they're a part of a playoff. Last one for you, Liz in or Liz out on Jordan Love this point? Oh, Jordan Love. Look, I'm representing the Packers today. Look at that. We got the Packers, the old school pack. The Packers, as we were recording this last night, just broke Taylor Swift's heart. I can't wait for the album. It was, uh, it was a beautiful night. I have to say the pass interference no call, a little less egregious than Drake Stoops in the no call in the corner of the end zone in Bedlam. And, uh, you know, that one was neither satisfying nor uh, hurtful. The Drake Stoops one, that was more kind of gobsmacked. Last night's non-call was very satisfying for me. Mm. So 
I told a story the other day with the Hutchins bros. There was a great Sky Sports fan zone where Man City got a goal scored against them. And the player for West Bromwich Albion was offside. And their fan got up and just said, that makes it even better. And that's how I feel this morning. A blown call, a Packers win, that makes it even better. But Jordan Love is great, to get back to your point. He's playing sure. really well right now. Love that. You know what else we love? Simon Hooper's refereeing, uh, talking Oof. Tottenham City. I, I see we made it all the way into this. I didn't even bring it up. You're welcome. I even led with, with the team of yours that won yesterday. Thank uh, you. That, that Tottenham City, uh, the, the Lizenby Letterman Derby, um, it felt like a win for Tottenham. It was a 3-3 draw, but that's, a, that's a, the, not the rare draw, the common draw at City that feels like a win, and we like that. I just have to tell this story real quick. It was a tie, and I was talking to Barry Trammell, and uh, I don't even remember how ties got brought up because that match was going on as we were talking, and I said, Barry, how do you feel about ties? How do you think Barry Trammell feels about ties? Not the kind you wear on your neck. I'm talking about in a sporting event. I'll say, I'll say this. I haven't seen him where he's a big fan of the Blazer, uh, but no ties often. But on, on, in terms of the draw, the, the level tie, what does he feel about him? I love it. I love it, he said. And he made a great point. It would help us uh, separate a lot of these undefeated or one-loss teams, especially in college football, if we had ties instead of overtime wins for some of these guys. Fascinating. Let's get. We need to find Barry a Premier League team. That's what we need to do. And huh. if he's so into, if he's really into celebrating draws, it needs to be a relegation uh, zone side that really Barry has to stri- celebrate. Every Barry point. strikes me as a Luton Town guy. He would. I think I've told him a bit about Luton Town. I think he'd be fascinated by that story. Well, it's the aims of England, so he's gonna love it. There you go. <laughs> Barry <laughs> Trammell does love Ames. He loves Iowa. Um, I hope he loves the Letterman jacket with Todd and Eli because that's wrapping it up for us. Um, we'll have a whole lot more news around the portal, around Dylan Gabriel, about everything with the Sooners this week. Um, anticipating at some point a Seth Luttrell, Joe John Finley presser, TBD on that, coaches out on the road, that whole thing. Uh, you can find my work on the Sooners, as always, at selloutcrowd at eli-letterman.com. Todd, what do you got going this week? Uh, we got ranking something silly. I'm going to talk about some of my favorite things in Oklahoma City growing up in the 90s sports-wise that I miss that are no more. Uh, shout out to All Sports Stadium. Are you familiar with All Sports Stadium, Eli? No, sir. Okay, you're not from here, so I'm going to educate you with my ranking something silly this week. Well, I'm excited uh, we got for that. Pod, we got some Todd Pods in the work. Uh, we're going to break down the uh, college football playoff and bowl game matchups over the next few weeks and a series starting soon where I'm going to introduce you to all of the new SEC and Big 12 locales that OU and OSU will be going to next year. Big. I'm trying to think. I want, I want Todd Lizenby most probably on Boulder, Colorado. But after that, I mean, I don't know. Scottsdale's intriguing. I need to talk to yeah. the powers that be that Boulder trip. I would like to uh, – I think I'm going to need to go out there in person to do a little research for that trip. I think so. Yeah, I know how you feel about Colorado. I love the Rockies. I know that. Big Todd Helton guy. Um, we are going to close out there. We're done. Uh, of course, thank you for listening on the Letterman Jacket. You can find us, as always, YouTube, Spotify, Apple Podcasts, Amazon, wherever you get your podcasts, selloutcrowd.com. A big thank you to our producer, Jacqueline Musgrove, to Michael Martin for all of his work, creative director Michael Lane. We'll be back with another episode of the Letterman Jacket later this week. <laughs> 